research is very clear hashimoto's disease happens because of the interplay between a person's genetic pool and the environment around them Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 212 of the Biohacker Babes. My name is Lauren, tuning in today from New York City. Hey. <laughs> and hey. I'm joined by my sister Renee. Hello. Hi. From Vegas. Hello, hello. Vegas and New York in the house. Hello. Um, thanks for tuning in, you guys. All right, pop quiz question. We're going to just jump right in. Renee, what is your favorite? I don't know if it's a fun fact. What is your favorite fact about Hashimoto's thyroid? Oh, fun fact? Just a fact. Something that you think people need to, to know more and more. Oh, gosh. I think still the lab testing piece, like how how incorrectly it's being done. And, you know, I was thinking back to when I first started working at an integrative medical practice. This was in 2013, I think. And it was my first exposure to working under doctors that ran full thyroid panels, full thyroid panels. This is 10 years ago looking at antibodies, looking all, at all the numbers. And I, it felt like everyone that came to me, because the way it would work is people will come in, get lab testing, work, see the physician, and then the physician would typically recommend nutrition counseling. So then they would come to me and I was just like, does everyone have Hashimoto's? That was my thought in 2013. Every, Especially women, right? I was like, every female has Hashimoto's. What is going on? And I think it was just because it was my first exposure to a physician that was doing the right lab testing. And even mm. today, occasionally I'm still getting lab work from clients where TSH is the only thing on there. Maybe I'll get a couple other things, but antibody is almost, I, I almost never see it. So yeah, I think we still need to maybe shout a little louder if you are having a lot of the symptoms, right? Fatigue, dry skin, thinning hair, trouble losing weight, all the typical thyroid things. And even if you've been diagnosed with hypothyroidism, if you don't know if you have Hashimoto's or not, I would question if you need more lab testing. Yeah. Yeah. I would say even, you know, irregardless of symptoms, I would ask for antibodies on a test, no matter what, just because there's so many environmental exposures. Yeah. Right. And- you are like physicians do give pushback on that because it's more expensive. Insurance companies don't often cover it. But if you just need to add on those antibodies, we can run that. You can order. Actually, there's a lot of direct to consumer labs that you can get online now. Empower yourself. Oh, yeah. It's worth the investment. It's not even that expensive. Get it so you know, so you don't keep just badgering your thyroid in you. I think today you're going to learn a lot of the different um, triggers and offenders to the thyroid which you could be doing every day and not know about it. So I think invest in the test, just at the very least, get the antibodies added. To your yeah. 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 If your doctor pushes back, 
I would say one, maybe it's time for a new doctor, but two, something like Ulta Labs online, it's so cheap to just just pay the cash and go get it done. So great, great yeah. advice. But, and we offer that as well. So through GHA Lab. So if right, you listen right. to this and you just want to get them, contact us. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a fun fact or anything like that stands out to you? I'm mad at myself for saying fun because none of this is fun. It's actually quite serious. But <laughs> something that really stuck out to me today that Dr. Gupta talked about was the makeup and skin pro- care products, which we know are very toxic to the body. That's why we always push, you know, run through your EWG verified whenever you can. When you run out of products, you really want to replace it with something cleaner. But there's something about the way that he said it today, about these things coming into your skin and then they're just getting kind of deposited on the thyroid. We already know that women are way more susceptible to Hashimoto's and to thyroid problems in general. And then we have women that are wearing makeup, right? I know way less men that wear makeup. So women are already compounding this vulnerability and making it so much worse by putting products and makeup on their face. Even if it is clean, there's still stuff in there, right? There's still stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not going to stop wearing makeup, but I think it's just having that education and, and insight definitely makes you think twice and helps us, helps us to be a little bit better and then a little bit better and a little bit better. Yeah. And there's better and better options. I mean, Mm -hmm. like I, at least for like, I call it kind of foundation or whatever, like an overall face thing. Like I use beauty counter for mascara. I use beauty counter eyeshadow, beauty counter eyeliner. No, I, I, that's where I get like, you know, the Sephora, that's a tough one. Put my foot down on the eyeliner. Yeah. (laughs) I tried a, I tried a eyeliner that was made from like blackberries once that didn't go over so well. So (laughs) if you know of a good eyeliner, you have a photo. (laughs) It was a lifetime ago. It feels like, but um, I'm picturing Renee just walking through the garden and just squeezing berries on her face, (laughs) raspberry lips, blackberry eyeliner. Hey, as long as you didn't cry, it wasn't too bad. But if you cried, it was like, it was definitely not waterproof. (laughs) Yeah. But anyways, but you know, there's better options. So that's a good point for women. You got to look at the makeup. Definitely. So we're going to put that into the show notes. Might as well just keep sharing those resources on cleaner, safer beauty care products and household products. But so we're talking about Hashimoto's primarily today. We are bringing on Dr. Anshul Gupta who is a thyroid expert, but we decided to really zero in on just Hashimoto's. And he is a wealth of knowledge. He has a book that you can find in the resources. He is kind of all over the internet. He has spread his wisdom and experience everywhere. So today is a brief overview. I felt like we it was fairly comprehensive, but I think in thyroid land, there's just so, so much more. So definitely look him up, find him, use him. He is a wealth of information. Thyroid land. That's good. That's good. (laughs) Thyroid land. No. So, (laughs) yeah, thyroid land. So much we need to know. So, uh, before we drop in, here's a little bit more about Dr. Anshul Gupta. He is a best selling author, speaker, researcher, and the world expert in Hashimoto's disease. He educates people worldwide on reversing Hashimoto's disease. He is a board-certified family medicine physician with advanced certification in functional medicine, peptide therapy, and also fellowship trained in integrative medicine. He has worked at the prestigious Cleveland Clinic Department of Functional Medicine alongside Dr. Mark Hyman, and he has helped thousands of patients to reverse their health issues by using the concepts of functional medicine. Yeah, I'm just so grateful that, one, he's 
somewhat dedicated his life to helping people with thyroid issues and Hashimoto's and and just such a pleasure to chat with. I, I know everyone is going to love this conversation. So let's go ahead and bring him on. Welcome, Dr. Gupta to the Biohacker Babes. Thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. You know, like you guys are doing an amazing job. So it's an honor and a pleasure that we are talking about an important topic of Hashimoto's today. Yes. Thank you for saying that. We actually haven't done a dedicated episode to anything thyroid in quite a while. And I think we're going to focus on, as we mentioned before we hit record, we're going to zoom in on Hashi's because there's not enough attention or education around it. So we're really thrilled to have you as an expert here. I think just some statistics to share with our audience, and you could probably clarify even correct. I'm not even sure how accurate these may be. According to Google, Hashimoto's disease, the most common cause of hypothyroidism. Yes? That is correct. Yes. 14 million Americans are affected by Hashimoto's. Does that sound correct? Yes. Ballpark. But interestingly enough, even though 14 million Americans, it's actually quite low on the profile of autoimmune diseases. If we're going to compare it to something like rheumatoid arthritis, I'm kind of curious, and we can get into this as we go through the conversation, but is it underdiagnosed? Is it really just a, a much lower risk profile? I think there's so much that we don't know about Hashimoto's. And you're the expert. You wrote a book called Reversing Hashimoto's, Three-Step Process for Losing Weight, Ending Fatigue, and Reducing Brain Fog, I believe, inspired by your own healing journey, which you got off medications and actually really optimized your healing process in this way. And now you're helping people around the world to do so effectively. So thank you for your work and for joining us in this conversation. Absolutely. Yes. You know, like it's my uh, kind of life's mission to kind of give hope to people with Hashimoto's that they can get their life back, you know, because they have been told time and again that they cannot do anything more to improve their disease as well as to get their life back. Mm, yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. yeah. So to drop us in, what exactly is Hashimoto's disease and how does it affect the thyroid? So Hashimoto's disease is actually an autoimmune condition of the thyroid gland where your body is producing antibodies which are directed against the thyroid gland and it starts a very slow destruction of the thyroid gland and it takes sometimes weeks to months to years to finally destroy the thyroid gland and it finally leads to what we call as hypothyroidism or low thyroid. So majority of people actually do get diagnosed with hypothyroidism and they don't even know the exact reason of the hypothyroid, which is actually, in fact, Hashimoto's disease. Mm. Yeah. And what do you think the missing link is from hypothyroidism to Hashimoto's? Is it that just most physicians are only looking at TSH? They're not looking at a full thyroid panel. They're not testing antibodies. What's the missing, the missing link? Yeah, so the missing link is that, you know, the conventional medicine doctors do not have a treatment for Hashimoto's. So once you don't have a treatment for Hashimoto's, why do you even check or bother about it? Because their protocol is not going to change. Because the treatment for Hashimoto's is still the same. Is that if your thyroid is not able to produce enough thyroid hormone, they are just going to put you on the levothyroxine medicine to supplement that thyroid hormone. They literally do not have any protocol or any medicine at this point of time that can lower the antibodies or address the autoimmune portion of Hashimoto's disease. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine, and we also know there's a lot of missing opportunities here from addressing gut pathogens, nutrient deficiencies, maybe heavy metal, toxic exposures. How much of that when it comes to Hashimoto's is, is overlooked? 
So again, you know, like looking at Hashimoto's, most of the people do not understand what exactly is happening in Hashimoto's disease. They feel that Hashimoto's is another like thyroid condition, just kind of, you know, even like, you know, a lot of functional doctors, they're just thinking, okay, well, Hashimoto's disease, don't do levothyroxin, that is synthetic hormone, let's put you on a natural version of, you know, like, you know, thyroid hormone, like armor or nature's thyroid, that's it, you're fine, go home, maybe just kind of pay a little bit of attention to your lifestyle. Not that, you know, like that doesn't work because still that is not going to the root of the problem. Research is very clear. Hashimoto's disease happens because of the interplay between a person's genetic pool and the environment around them. So that's what the research says. Now, the environment around them is still yet to be defined. And that's where, you know, like I was under this quest to define this environment around a person which leads to Hashimoto's disease. So that's where, you know, like I defined several different environmental factors which do affect Hashimoto's. And most of the people will have multiple environmental factors which are combined together leading to Hashimoto's disease. When we talk about root cause approach, people are saying, okay, well, what is my real reason of getting Hashimoto's disease? And what they're actually referring to is that what is that one thing which caused my Hashimoto's? And what I want people to understand is that, you know, we have to give up this thinking of just one thing. That doesn't happen with Hashimoto's disease. It's a combination of things which leads to Hashimoto's. So unless we find all the root causes, unless we find all of the problems which are leading to Hashimoto's disease and address all of them, Hashi doesn't get better. And I think that's the reason a lot of females or people continue to suffer from symptoms. Research suggests that more than 60 to 70% of Hashimoto's patients, even though they are taking medicines, still continue to suffer from symptoms of Hashimoto's disease. Mm. Wow, that's a huge statistic. Uh, Such a great insight and point that it's not a singular root cause. I think this really needs to be said over and over again and more and louder. It's root causes for most of our chronic diseases, right? It's multifactorial. So do you think a lot of people are running into this issue where they find maybe one root cause and they go, oh, that was it. I'm done. I don't need to look anymore. Is that That's common? correct. Yes. Yeah. Very, very common. People come to see me. Oh, well, you know, I'm already like, you know, improved my diet. I think I'm very healthy. I've addressed everything. I've changed my diet. I have given up gluten. I still don't see a difference. I think there is no hope for me. I don't know what else to do. And I will say, okay, well, hold on, slow down. I said, that's fine. Just slow down. Food is just one root cause, right? And you addressed one of those root causes, but there are others that we still have to address and work on. Some people have worked on the gut. Some people might have worked on the toxins, but there are very few who have looked at all the different root causes and worked on all of them and have not seen results. Hmm. Yeah. So I would love to break down the root causes for people. And maybe we start with food because I think that is one that a lot of people go to first. They hear, give up gluten and dairy. Okay. That's step one. Um, But let's break down. So what would you say are the top foods people need to cut out? And then maybe we can get into what foods they should include that can actually support the thyroid. Absolutely. So the top foods, you know, like that people should cut out if they have Hashimoto's disease is gluten, dairy, soy, corn, Caffeine, alcohol, sugars, uh, and then processed food and processed meats. Okay. I have to ask, why, why, yeah, <laughs> why, why the caffeine? What's the connection there? Is that more of the adrenals and cortisol component or is there something else going on there? 
So caffeine is still a toxin for a body, right? You know, we obviously, it's like one of those addictions, which is socially acceptable, right? That's what I call caffeine as, right? Yes, so yes. Any kind of toxin we put in our body still has to go through the same detox system. We have one detox system that all the toxins basically flow through. So caffeine is another toxin that our body get exposed to, especially people with Hashimoto's disease. Their detox system is already overburdened. So caffeine is just overburdening their detox system. That's the first thing that is doing. So that's the reason we want to remove it. The second thing you correctly pointed out is adrenals, right? So caffeine is a kick, right? Your adrenals kind of get a big kick from the caffeine whenever you drink it, but then you get those big crashes. What happens with Hashimoto's disease is that the equilibrium, the hormonal equilibrium their body lives into is gone, right? So they are going into these waves of things. Suddenly they get too much inflamed and their hashi gets worse. And then suddenly like, you know, they get off again comes down and they feel better. But what happens is that whenever your body gets inflamed, whenever your Hashimoto's gets worse, your antibody level spikes up that destroys your thyroid gland and causes fibrosis of thyroid gland. So that up and down and up and down, you know, like these things happen and that damages your thyroid gland much more than anything. And that's what caffeine also does because of, you know, you know, exposure to caffeine causes this adrenal spike. And again, that causes spike to other hormones too. And again, leads to this Hashi spikes. So that's the reason I always recommend people for giving up caffeine. You don't have to give up caffeine for like ever and ever, but at least do it for four to six weeks so that you can completely detoxify from that. And maybe try to reintroduce it back and see how your body does. And some people will tolerate it. Some people actually feel much, so much good after giving up caffeine. They will say, well, I don't think I really need caffeine. I'm feeling much better after giving up caffeine. Mm. Is sense. there any personalized component where some people are better metabolizers or if you feel like their detox pathways are working really well, is there an opportunity to involve some or would you just say across the board, we need to try this elimination no matter what. And then we see how you feel. So again, you know, like personalized medicine, you know, like we have the ability to personalize each and everything, right? So yes, absolutely. You're correct. Now we have great testing opportunities where we can actually check all the different detoxification enzymes. Some of them have better detoxifiers. They're phase one, phase two, phase three, all of them are working great. So obviously they can get rid of the toxins much better than anybody else. But in case, you know, like somebody is not aware of the detox pathways, somebody is not aware of their genetic pool or their epigenetics, then in that situation, it might be a good idea to give it up. But if they're aware of those things and if they're great metabolizers, then absolutely they can use it. Right to know. Okay. Yeah. Coming back to the top offenders, gluten and dairy, I actually think, Renee, you mentioned like, oh, everyone knows about gluten and dairy. I find a lot of people still don't know about the dairy component. They like kind of mm. eliminated gl the gluten, maybe 90, 95%. Well, one, I'm curious about that. Is there any room for it or it has to be 102%? And then with the personalization, is it possible that someone could be really sensitive to the dairy, but not the gluten? And then through molecular mimicry, we're actually still seeing the response to both, no matter what your personal kind of, I guess, response is to those foods. So, you know, like whatever we recommend is kind of a very big overview of things, right? You know, like not each and every person will be sensitive to all of these foods, right? So what we recommend is that, okay, well, the problem is that first of all, we don't have the perfect test to check for food sensitivities. We right. do have tests, you know, which are becoming better and better, but still nothing is perfect. So that's where I like, okay, well, if you're coming to see me or anybody else, and if you have symptoms, 
then just kind of remove those foods for four to six weeks. That gives your body a break. And then slowly and slowly reintroduce these foods and see how you do, right? So like, as you said, for gluten. Now for gluten, the good part is that we do have great tests available now. We have tests to check for celiac disease and we have some other gut zoomer tests. Which, which becomes much more specific for the gluten. So at least that piece, you know, we can nail it down. For the dairy piece, again, that's very difficult because we still do not have any specific tests for dairy. Now, the, the, from, the, from the dairy aspect, there are multiple problems with the dairy. You know, molecule mimicry is only one piece of the puzzle, but how we produce dairy, that's the biggest piece of the problem, right? The, the way we are treating our livestock, you know, kind of creates a whole bunch of problems, right? Because, you know, like what we feed them, how we treat them, how confined of a space they are living into, what kind of stress they are going through, right? Because if they're going through stress, they are releasing the same hormones that we do, cortisol and everything. That goes out there in the dairy and we are consuming that obviously. So we are taking that external hormones. Then you talk about xenoestrogens and things. So again, a lot of these dairy products might be given external hormones. And again, that comes out in the dairy and that affects our body. The feed, even though they might be saying that, okay, well, you know, they are organic, but the feed might be wheat. So they are given corn and wheat to increase the dairy production, which again is not their natural diet. And again, all that stuff again causes inflammation in their body, which comes out in the dairy. So as I said, dairy has multiple problems at multiple levels. So that's the reason we cannot have just one test to rule out dairy as a potential component you know which is causing inflammation the best thing is to give up dairy and then again try to reintroduce it and see what your body does with that yeah so many sneaky loopholes in the farming industry scary it is yes yeah i think the food industry is one of those industries which just keep on making like you know different different newer products and we have to be detectives you know because now like okay well everything is gluten-free but as soon as you buy a gluten-free product and you look at it you know it is filled with like junk Oh, like it is filled with corn or soy or sugars and all that stuff. And people are thinking that they're eating very healthy because they're eating this gluten-free product. When in reality, it is completely junk, much worse than gluten. Right. Yeah. Right. The junk gluten-free products. And I love that you said you have to be like a a food detective to, you know, read the labels and things. I was actually just on a flight. And I, I guess when I went to the bathroom, the flight attendant had put one of those little snack packs on my seat. And just out of curiosity, I was like, what's in this? And I flipped it over. I'm still not really sure because it wasn't like there was no picture on it or anything, but it must have had 40 ingredients in it in this little oh, packet. Right. I can, you know, canola oil, wheat, gluten, all these kinds of things. I'm like, frightening. So yes, definitely read your labels. So it sounds like, so really starting with kind of like an elimination diet, cutting these top offenders out, seeing how we feel. And then the big question I always get from clients is, well, then what do I eat? If I can't eat all these things, what do I eat? So do you have any like top food recommendations that people should focus on? Absolutely. And again, like, you know, the way we have focused on the diet is that, you know, we have created these kind of, you know, restrictions in terms of people, oh, this is the calorie, this is the macros, and this is the quantity. So people are very hardwired to think about food in that particular way, just about the quantity. And they've forgotten totally about the quality of the food. And that's what, you know, I think we are focusing on now is about quality of the food, not just about the quantity. So in our diets, we kind of give, you know, people, okay, well, you know, these are the foods that you eat and you can eat them as much as you like, doesn't, you know, don't care, just fill your tummy to as much as you can. So in that aspect, vegetables are great. So we ask our clients, 50% of your diet should be vegetables. 
doesn't matter what kind obviously we are talking about non starchy vegetables not just potatoes so don't fill your like plates with just with potatoes but you French know fries. all the <laughs> i know right <laughs> so all the colorful vegetables non starchy vegetables you can find are really good so eat them whether it's in the salad form raw form sauteed form steamed form all of them are great so that's the first thing that people should be eating the second thing people should be should be eating is good quality protein right again protein is a building blocks so we definitely all of them need proteins your thyroid also needs protein different kinds of amino acids so that's very important if you do eat meat products then chicken fish turkey again obviously eating them organic you know is really good if you are not a meat eater then obviously you can kind of supplement your proteins through like you know your lentils your beans your nuts and seeds those are options to do that but good quality protein is very important then next comes the good quality fats again as a food industry we have blamed flat in the last 50 years for everything so everybody is in a low fat diet what we forgot to tell people is that there is good fat and there is bad fat so you have to stay away from bad fat but you need to include good fat people don't know that each and every cell of our body is lined with fat so we need that fat 60% of our brain is made with fat so if you don't have good fats in our diet then obviously our brain doesn't work you know our body doesn't work so include that good fats whether that is the fatty fishes whether those are like you know your olive oil your coconut oil avocados again nuts and seeds almond walnuts chia seeds flax seeds all of those things are good fats that you need to include those and then after that in the end include your gluten free grains either you can include some quinoa or some brown rice those are good grains that can be helpful for your body so that's the way you know like if you kind of plan your diet with starting with you know your meal with a big plate of veggies then you know like adding some protein then adding some good fats and in the end if you eat some good quality grains gluten free this is the diet where you're getting all the right nutrients to support your thyroid to support hashimotos reduce inflammation in the body getting all the vitamins and minerals that your body needs right yeah. what about superfoods like organ beads and cacao raw cacao perfectly fine to do no issues yeah again try to get it from good sources that's the main important thing because again these things can again cacao powders often are like kind of uh, laden with a lot of toxins some of them can have lead toxins yeah. in them and other things mixed into it so make sure you're getting a good cacao powder in that way and same with organ meats again organic grass fed you know like looking for that options is also important yeah did you have eggs on your list did you say no eggs so no <laughs> Yeah, I feel I, like eggs is a tricky one. Uh, and no one wants to give up eggs. Don't take away my eggs. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. so that's the reason I don't have a general recommendation on everybody should be giving up eggs or not. But okay. again, I have problems with the egg industry, the same thing. And that is again an industry which fools people a lot. organic cage free eggs right you know like again organic feed means they can be getting organic wheat they might be getting organic corn but that is not their regular diet right cage free means that they don't have to be locked into a very small cage but they can be locked into a room right so that's the way people are using these terminologies and again people are thinking that oh well i'm buying these like 7 dollar eggs as compared to like a 2 dollar dozen eggs and i think i'm doing a great job but people still fool them so if you have access to a local place where you know you know that they are free range where actually on the ground eating what they want to do and they're doing the right practices then those eggs are generally fine 
but otherwise if you're just relying on the stores you know just do your research and if you really have to know about those farms before you buy those eggs i agree you have yeah. to do the research because we all fall victim to the marketing even i do with the organic egg section and uh, i think it's ewg came out with like a new rating system for eggs and there were a lot of really top egg companies that i thought were safe and they gave them really poor ratings it's like you you have to constantly be updating these things it's it's kind of scary yeah. exactly and that's what i said you know like food is such a thing that you know you think you know like you are doing a good job or everybody's doing a good job but suddenly like you know the food industry is just one step ahead of you yeah of making the fool always. of people that's what i always say yeah they're very yeah. good at the game if it's a game, I don't know. <laughs> uh, what yeah. about any other foods that we may want to avoid, like goitrogen, seaweed? Actually, I would love to talk about iodine. Too much? Too little? What do we need to know about <laughs> iodine? So all the three topics are great. So let's touch based on the goitrogens first, okay? So again, like, you know, this is a kind of a very popular myth that, you know, like we have to avoid these goitrogenous foods, you know, like especially these like cauliflower, cabbages and broccolis and things. Now, this research actually came about 50 years ago, which was done in rabbits. They were given these goitrogenous foods, too many of them, and it was seen that they affected their ability to utilize and absorb iodine from the gut. Okay, and that's the reason it was, you know, like seemed to be bad. Now, at that time, the number one reason of hypothyroidism was not Hashimoto's disease, but it was low iodine. Okay, and that's the reason we actually came to know about thyroid disorders, right? But then, you know, the world over, we have added iodine to each and every food, especially in the salt. So now the number one reason of hypothyroidism is Hashimoto's disease and not iodine. So that goitrogenic theory doesn't apply for majority of the people anymore. In fact, there are a couple of research studies which shows that in Hashimoto's people, these goitrogenic foods are really good. Because all these, you know, like uh, cauliflowers, you know, like cabbages, broccolis, they are like high in antioxidant compounds, quercetin, they're high in detox compound like sulfluorophanes. So that's the reason they're really good for Hashimoto's patients. So they can easily eat it. And I prefer like people to eat them in huge quantities because they're completely safe to do that. So that's about the goitrogens. The second question about seaweed or the seafoods. So seaweed, again, you know, they are good amount of iodine. And I think in limited quantities, we do need iodine. Okay, so I think those are perfectly safe to do that. Unless a person is taking an external supplement of a high-dose iodine, then obviously they can avoid it. But otherwise, normal amount of seaweed is perfectly fine. Now coming to the last question about iodine, whether it's good or bad. So you're, correct, you, so you're absolutely correct that the research says that too much of iodine is bad for Hashimoto's and too little bit of iodine is also bad for Hashimoto's. Hey, biohackers, are you tired of the daily stressors that seem to never end? Feeling overwhelmed, anxious, or just unable to relax? Maybe all of the above? Well, we do have something very special to share with you today. We are really excited to introduce Trocom by our friends over at Transcriptions. It is an all-natural solution for reducing anxiety, improving sleep, and supporting complete relaxation. Trocom is designed specifically to help you find your inner zen and reclaim your peace of mind. Trocom contains a powerful blend of four key ingredients, kava, B3 GABA, CBD, and CBG, all of which enhance natural GABA production, our calming neurotransmitter in the brain, and so much more. Let's break it down. So kava. 
Kava is derived from the roots of the kava plant. It is a natural ingredient that has been used for centuries in the South Pacific to promote relaxation and reduce stress. You may remember my story about drinking kava for the first time in Hawaii and feeling oh so relaxed. TroCalm brings you the calming benefits of kava in a convenient and safe form. Now, B3 GABA. Taking GABA supplements don't usually work because most forms can't cross the blood-brain barrier. But with vitamin B3 attached to the GABA, it can cross into the brain and efficiently increase GABA levels to help calm your mind and reduce that constant feeling of tension. Lastly, CBD and CBG. These cannabinoids increase our feelings of bliss, protect our brain, decrease pain, and decrease anxiety by reacting with our natural endocannabinoid system without the psychoactive effects. Whether you're dealing with the demands of a busy lifestyle, struggling to get a good night's sleep, or simply seeking a moment of tranquility in this fast-paced world, Trocalm is here to help. You may be wondering, how do we personally use it? Well, what I really love is that I can split up my dose depending on the occasion. I may only take a quarter of a trochee to ease some anxiety during the day, one half trochee for a long cross-country flight to stay relaxed and comfortable, or I may take an entire trochee before bed when I want to get the best quality sleep possible. It is really up to you how it can best fit into your daily lifestyle. If this has piqued your interest, we have an exclusive offer just for you. When you visit Troscriptions.com and use the promo code BiohackerBabes, you'll receive 10% off your order. Again, that's Troscriptions.com, discount code BiohackerBabes for 10% off. And before I forget, no, you won't get a blue tongue. This trochee is actually orange. So you may get a slight orange tint, but nothing more than you would get from an orange-flavored candy. But you don't eat candy, right? Just trochees. All right, biohackers, to your peace and calmness. So do we test? Do you think it's reliable to, to look at iodine and serum blood testing to as like a reliable marker about whether or not we need to adjust supplementation or foods? So we do not have a perfect test for iodine. That's another problem. So there are like different ways to check iodine. It's a serum test. You know, then it is also urine test, a spot urine test, as well as 24-hour urine collection. 24-hour urine collection is comes to the closest to being accurate, but it is kind of a very difficult to do test and still we cannot completely rely on it. So that's the reason, you know, like iodine is still a big issue. All right. So what we've come to the conclusion is that, you know, like we do need iodine, okay, but we don't need high doses of it. So again, the way we can do it is that either include like a small dose of iodine into the supplementation or use food as a source of iodine, which can be your salt, which can be again, as we discussed, you know, these seaweeds, you know, or sea vegetables and things. And if you're taking iodine as a supplementation, again, sticking with low dose, you know, between 100 to 200 micrograms, do not go like... Some people are taking like thousands micrograms of iodine, which I think is too much for them. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It yeah. seems like, I mean, a lot of people that have been on like this health journey have switched to, you know, sea salt, pink salt, Himalayan salt. Um, not We're not doing the iodized salt anymore. So do you think just adding in some seaweed is probably the best place to start for those people? Or would you recommend ever using iodized salt? I think I'm okay. You know, again, like depends on person to person, right? You know, yeah. and some people just hate those seaweed. They just don't like those sea vegetables because they have a very different taste to it. So I said, okay, well, if you cannot have sea vegetables or seaweed, you don't want to take a supplement, then, you know, iodized salt is the best thing because you need iodine in that diet, right? But if you can eat seaweed and sea vegetables, definitely those are the best choices because they have so many other benefits beyond the iodine. 
you know, those seaweeds and sea vegetables. So that would be my first choice. And then after, the, if you cannot do those, then comes the iodized salt, you know, as, as a last resort. And obviously adding some iodine to the supplementation is perfectly fine. So some of the good supplements will have lesser amount of iodine between 100 to 200 micrograms. And I think that's a pretty safe limit to do that for people. Okay. Oh, good to know. Okay. I'm seeing it pop up more and more in multivitamins. Just a, a seems like a trace amount. So it's kind of nice to know. But I think, again, we have to put you know, the responsibility back on client patient, you have to do your homework. A lot of people just start collecting supplements and they're not cross-referencing. This is the total amount I'm taking in a day. So I feel like that could very easily add up, but you're saying a small amount in a supplement perfectly fine. Yeah, but that's actually very true because I do see some clients, they come to see me and they said, well, I don't think I'm on any iodine at all. And then suddenly, like, you know, once you start dissecting those supplements, you know, people add this iodine at they think that's a very small amount, but suddenly it just starts racking up. So again, supplement industry is one of those industries, again, that, you know, hides a lot of things. And unless, again, you know what you're taking, you know, you kind again, can actually miss a lot of things. So absolutely looking at all the supplements and then calculating the total iodine content is very important. Okay. So also kind of on the lines of nutrition, what what are your thoughts on fasting? Is there a place for it? Should we avoid it if we have thyroid issues? Because it's such a hot Great topic. Question. <laughs> yeah, such as a yes, you know, like and I love this topic, you know, because obviously intermittent fasting and fasting is such a fascinating topic. Everybody wants to do that, you know, because you know, for the you know, reducing inflammation, losing weight, you know, obviously biohacking, you know, anti-aging perspective. In Hashimoto's, it's a two-edged sword, though. Okay. The reason being, you know, like there are several recent studies which have shown that people who are doing longer fasts, longer means anything more than 24-hour fast, it does impact your thyroid. Because what is thyroid, right? Thyroid gland is or thyroid hormone is a metabolic hormone that is responsible to run the metabolic machinery. That means how much energy that your body needs to produce to keep sustenance happens. Now, whenever you go into the fasting mode beyond 24 hours, then you go also a little bit in that starvation mode where your body feels, okay, well, I don't have the food, so I might enter the starvation. So I need to reduce the consumption of how much energy I am utilizing. So the best way to do that is that reduce your thyroid hormone. Uh, that's kind of a feedback loop that happens for people. Okay. Now, again, people who are healthy, who are perfectly fine, you know, once they start eating again, that thyroid hormone levels do come back to normal, right? But again, people with Hashimoto's, as I said, their body doesn't like that again, yo-yo thing happening too much with their body. So sometimes longer fasts are not the best thing for people with Hashimoto's disease because that can lead to actually making a little bit or, or like, you know, symptoms worse for Hashimoto's patients. So intermittent fasting is fine for most of the Hashimoto's patients. But again, intermittent fasting, a lot of people are going up to 20 hours of fasting in a day because they feel that the longer fasts are actually better for them. Again, what I feel is that between 16 hours is actually a good amount of time for fast intermittent fasting for Hashimoto's patients. Going beyond that, again, might be too much for them. And again, taking breaks, you know, like again, doing it for five or six days and taking a break for a day or two, again, helps those Hashimoto's patients. There is also some concern, especially with females or middle-aged females around their periods, you know, like before the menstrual period, because their hormonal shifts are happening. And again, they're already going to that hormonal shift, which is putting their body a little bit at a more stressful journey and then having Hashimoto's and then doing intermittent fasting. 
again might upset you know like some of the hormonal imbalances so again being more careful around your periods time or maybe not doing it at the time might also be beneficial for them so a little bit more complicated topic you know in terms of fasting for hashimotos so again double edged sword works great for some people but it might not work good for all of the people with hashimotos yeah so just right. to clarify of course we want to look at the menstrual cycle make sure we're not fasting in times when hormones need to be nourished at thyroid issues in general, it sounds like fasting is not too detrimental because as soon as we refeed, we're actually, the thyroid is kicking back and responding. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. That's most and of the time. That's yeah. But a lot of the research people uh, kind of blame this one study where thyroid levels went down. But if you go further down in the study, you see once they started eating again, it all returned to normal. But people look at the first half of the study and go, oh no, it dropped. And so then in Hashimoto's, then we want to be really conservative, no more than 16 hours, roughly. That's what, you know, like we have come up with, you know, again, that can be personalized because again, it depends on a lot of different factors. Again, people are really healthy, who whose body is really in good shape. They have worked on their body. Then I think they can obviously like, you know, go to a little bit more extremes and try fasting at a, like a bigger level. But people who are already having too many symptoms and they're, they're just starting their healing journey. I don't recommend fasting for them as a first resort. I think working on all the other things, food, stress, supplements, toxins, working on all of them first. And then once you've worked on all of those things, then introducing fasting later on, I think would be a good choice. Hmm. Great. Can you believe summer is already over? It always seems to fly by. And I mean, who doesn't love summertime? I feel like it's a great chance to break away from your daily grind. You can enjoy life a little bit more with friends and family. Although... All the fun aside, we sometimes are a little bit tempted to fall off our healthy routines, right? In the summer, we have longer days, so we tend to stay up later. We might have more irregular eating habits, maybe a little more indulging on vacations. Hey, it happens to all of us. But as vacation season winds down, it's time to get back on track with our health. And I think a great thing to focus on as we transition into the fall season is sleep. Sleep for me is always number one. Of course, eating healthy, exercise, stress management, all of that is helpful too. But I think focusing on sleep is a great way to kick off the season. And just one interesting fact about sleep to mention, drinking more than two servings of alcohol per day for men and more than one serving per day for women can decrease sleep quality by 39.2%. And that is according to the Sleep Foundation survey. And that's not even mentioning all the other maybe indulgent food or late night eating effects. So remember, sleep is the key to your body's rejuvenation and repair process. It controls hunger and weight loss hormones, boosts energy levels, impacts countless other vital functions. Good night's sleep will improve your well-being much more than anything else. So this fall, we're focusing on sleep. And that's where something like magnesium can come in. Most of us are not getting enough magnesium in our diet because the soil is depleted. Our food supply is just not providing the magnesium we need. And magnesium is really, really important for falling asleep, staying asleep, and even waking up refreshed. Now, I'm not saying to go to any store and just pick up a magnesium off the shelf. I would recommend... Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. This product specifically contains all seven forms of magnesium, which help with all those processes of sleep that I mentioned. And really, the sleep benefits are remarkable. Once your sleep is optimized, you'll find it's easier to tackle everything else when it comes to your health, right? You have more energy to go to the gym, more energy to cook, go grocery shopping, all those things. So trust me, it's a game changer. All right. So visit magbreakthrough.com, Biohacker Babes, and 
you can save 10% with code biohackerbabes10. The special offer is only available at magbreakthrough.com slash biohackerbabes. And I will put that link in the show notes. So go ahead and scroll down. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I think you want to kind of create that safety in the body. Like we're getting the nutrients, we're getting the food, we're doing the things, and then we can look at the fasting. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. So I would love to talk about another root cause, toxins. And I know this can be a really big bucket, right? We have maybe viral infections, heavy metals, environmental toxins. I will let you start. What do you think is a priority when we start looking at this bucket? Absolutely. So the toxin starts, you know, like we know about age old heavy metal toxins, you know, like, you know, for centuries, we know that the heavy metals have caused various issues in our body and they continue to do so. Lead, mercury, arsenic, aluminum are the top ones. These are the heavy metals that are still present in our environment. So that definitely causes, you know, like uh, issues with Hashimoto's disease. The second comes the mold toxins. You know, we actually in the last decade or so, we came to know how mold toxins can affect, you know, our like uh, human beings. And now we know that Hashimoto's disease can also be affected with mold toxins. And again, I'm talking about mold toxins coming from our immediate environment, whether it is our houses, workplaces, or like, you know, vacation houses that we have lived into, we can get exposed to the mold toxins. Then comes the environmental toxins because each and every day we are pouring more and more chemicals into our environment, right? Whether those are the organophosphates, you know, which are being sprayed into our food or any of the toxins we are, which we are going to be exposed to. Now, females specifically, before they leave their house in the morning, they have more than 200 toxins or 200 products they're applying on their skin, right? And skin is the biggest organ of our body. So anything that we apply on the skin do get absorbed into our bloodstream. And what people don't know is that, you know, this is very small amount of toxins, but day in, day out, all of these toxins, when they go to the bloodstream, they actually go to your thyroid gland and it starts getting deposited over there. And from weeks to months to years, then they reach the toxic level. So that's the reason, you know, like knowing about all of these toxins are very important and exposure to them. You know, it's important to know where they're coming from and then reducing the exposure because each and every of my clients, definitely toxins are playing a role. 99% of my clients have some kind of toxins which are playing a role. So that's one of those root causes. I always tell people that, okay, well, you do have a toxin. So you need to kind of definitely address it. But again, being cautious over here, a lot of people are going online and buying these detox products or detox programs and then going through a detox on their own. That is dangerous. I've yeah. seen so many clients of mine coming to see me. Oh, well, I did this detox protocol actually made things worse for me. Now, obviously you did that because there is a science behind detoxification. You know, how I explained the different phases of detox. So it is very important to optimize all the phases of detox, just not like going online and buying this detox product, which is going to be useful. Actually, you need to work with a professional to proper detox your body. Yes, yes, yes. yes, Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's like, right, like you said, phase one, phase two, phase three. And some people will just buy a supplement that's like just phase two or just phase one. It's like, yeah, definitely have to be careful with that. So thank you for saying that. Yeah, Um, toxins are so kind of hidden into everywhere. So that's again, like, you know, a lot of people are not even aware where these toxins are coming from, right? So like for heavy metals, like, you know, we see mercury definitely coming from a lot of fish, like people think, oh, well, you know, I'm eating the healthy protein. This is like the fish, right? You know, especially a lot of people like to Mm -hmm. eat tunas, but we know that they can be high in mercury, right? So again, Mm -hmm. looking at what fishes are safe, you know, from mercury standpoint is very important. 
The second plugin, you know, which actually I came to know, like, you know, by my own research was that a lot of people are taking these fish oil supplements. Now, people don't realize that these fish oil supplements are also coming from fish. And if you're buying from a company which is not checking them for mercury, then you're actually giving all that fish oil with mercury in your system. So very important to buy good quality fish oil supplement because that can also be a reason that, you know, you might be high in mercury. Yeah. And that's where supplementing with a toxic heavy metal. Quite quite scary. Exactly. Yeah. So it's yeah. very important to again research your supplements because again, this is another industry where not all the supplements are the same, right? There are companies which are making supplements, they do not test it, they actually add medicines to their supplements, so much so they're going to that route. So very important to buy from the right source and right company so that you know that you're putting the right thing in your body. Hmm. Do you recommend any kind of testing? To, to determine which heavy metals are the problem or if mold is the problem, like organic yeah, I mean, acid people, or anything? Right. So people can afford the testing, then definitely that's always nice because then we can be more specific because obviously we can kind of, you know, do, do a general detox by working on all those phases, but there are specific detox products for each and every toxin, right? So if we know that particular toxin, then we can actually work on that particular one. So again, for heavy metals, there are different kinds of like, you know, uh, tests available. One is a urine test that checks for heavy metals in the urine. The second one is a hair analysis that checks for heavy metals in the hair. A lot of people are checking uh, heavy metals in the blood, but that is not the most accurate way because blood is actually checking us for the current exposure, but it is not giving the total body burden of that heavy metals in the body. So that's the reason you urine and hair analysis is good for the heavy metal piece of it. For the mold, we only have two tests available, which is basically both of them are urine. There are only two or three companies actually, not two tests. But it's a urine test that checks for mold toxins in the system. Now, again, a lot of people have been said that I have already been checked for mold. I know I'm allergic to mold. Well, this is totally different. What you have been tested for is that whether you, when you get exposed to mold spores, is that your body reacts to them and produce an allergic reaction. That is not the same as having mold toxins inside your body. Because what that means is that you got exposed to those mold spores, they entered your body and they start reproducing in your body and they start producing these mold toxins. Now, these mold toxins basically hijack your immune system and creates a condition called SIRS, which is CIRS, Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. And this surge is basically creating this whole environment of inflammation. And then that leads to triggering of autoimmune conditions like Hashimoto's disease. So that's the differentiation between mold allergy and mold toxins is very important for people to know about that. Yeah, great. How often are you seeing mercury amalgam fillings in the mouth being a trigger? And what do you do with people that are resistant to getting that looked at? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, uh, we are seeing less and less people because, you know, like with the newer generation and with the dentist coming in, you know, we don't see so many people with uh, mercury fillings anymore. Mm -hmm. But obviously, like, you know, we do see a lot of females, you know, who are 60 plus years of age and they still have mercury fillings in them. Some of them like even more than 10 fillings still left in their mouth. Uh, The problem is that, again, when we tell them about that people, again, people are just running to the dentist to get them removed. What people do not understand is that you have to get them removed in a safe manner. 
and the dentist when you go to them oh yes we are removing them in the safe manner but still they do not know so finding a biologic dentist is the only way to do that because they know all the techniques to kind of removing them in a safe manner but the problem is that there are not many biology dentists available and plus they are really expensive so that was the issue with that so some people who are totally resistant or removing them we said okay well keep them over there we'll work on the detox and we'll still work on the detox but a safe way of detox because for those people hard detox is not a good idea because you already have those toxins which are there and if you want to bring them out in the system and we're doing a hard detox actually they can make them more toxic in their bloodstream and we don't want that so for those people you can only do a very gentle detox so that we can just optimize a detox system to work better yeah with hashibaros people are already having a lot of symptoms we definitely don't want to make them feel worse right absolutely they deserve yeah. to feel yeah. better as soon as possible yeah and yeah. that's the reason yeah. i don't go with detox as the first way i always tell people your body is already inflamed your body is already broken this is not a good time to detoxify let's first rebuild your body let's focus on kind of healing your body once your body is little bit stronger then that is the time to work on the detox because detox is an energy intensive procedure right it requires a lot of calories a lot of vitamins a lot of minerals a lot of antioxidants from the body to do that right so which body's already broken down you cannot do detoxify at the time so that's the last thing that we work on people's body as detoxification yeah mm. and okay. and rest which yes perhaps people with hashimotos are already in that fight or flight going going already yeah in that aspect we can talk about exercising because obviously like you know we always want like people to do exercising right and exercising is great unfortunately for hashimoto's patients you know like exercising might not be the best choice initially for them because again that exercise even smaller when exercising for them can actually be again as a stressor for them right and that's where like you know defining stress is very important right people say okay well you know like they're thinking only about psychological stress well my relationship are good i'm my work is good i don't have any stress well the kind of exercising you are doing you know your body might be saying you that is too much for you again i am not saying that exercise is bad for anybody or hashimoto's people should not exercise i am not saying that what i am saying is that that might be another trigger that you are unaware of especially high intensity exercising right high intensity exercising again puts a lot of pressure on the body so you know uh, because of those bursts that you know again you know like the high intensity training goes through and again for hashimoto's people that bursts might not be the best choice for them so i always tell people with hashimoto's you know that do not do those hit trainings it is best to do kind of mix of cardio and strength training and slowly and slowly kind of get into that exercise mode and then do it and i tell people the best way to know is that let's say you go to your gym and you do a workout after coming back you are completely wiped out you are in the bed the whole day that means you overdid that exercise yeah. regime is not good for you then mm. back off yeah okay? so you yeah. have to find your sweet spot and the sweet spot for everybody is different right? i agree and more people need to talk about that cuz they think people just think like oh i did it i worked really hard and now i can pat myself on the back But de yeah, definitely that high intensity. I know with my clients that have thyroid imbalances, we just give very targeted heart rate zones. That high intensity really needs to be avoided. But unfortunately, group fitness is really centered around how intense can we go? Mm -hmm. It's too much. Yeah, yeah. But I also find a lot of patients with Hashimoto's. I mean, they don't even have the energy to go do that workout. That's true. So it's yeah. like 
you know, rather than doing, you know, a shot of espresso and forcing yourself to do it, just don't, don't do it. Go for a walk, maybe yoga, some body weight Mm -hmm. training, even like, yeah, there's other ways to move the body that aren't so stressful. And, and I also kind of see sometimes that they have some people, I'm not generalizing, but some with Hashimoto's have a hard time sleeping. They say, Mm -hmm. I'm really tired, but then I get in bed and I can't sleep. Do you see that? Is there something going on there? Yeah, tired and wired, right? That's the terminology that we use for these people is that we are completely tired, but we are wired. So that's the adrenal dysfunction, which is happening in Hashimoto's patients. So there is a strong connection between your uh, thyroid hormone and the cortisol hormone. So basically, like whenever in Hashimoto's clients, as I said, most of them, they have hypothyroidism and thyroid hormone is needed for the uh, proper functioning of the adrenal glands. So whenever there is less of the thyroid hormone, the body, you know, like the cortisol levels increases. Your adrenals have to try to pump more cortisol to kind of balance those hormonal levels. Okay. And that high cortisol level, again, doesn't let people to sleep. Because the way kind of our sleep cycle works is that, you know, like in the evening, our cortisol levels go down and a melatonin level increases in our body. And that's the sleep state that we go into. For those people, like, you know, their cortisol levels actually start rising up in the evening. So they feel very wired, you know, they cannot sleep because of that. That's typical of adrenal dysfunction, which comes along with Hashimoto's disease. And it's very important to work on those adrenal glands, you know, with through stress reduction exercises, through maybe some adaptogenic herbs, all of those things needs to be worked at. So is yeah. it the chicken or the egg? Is it the adrenals or the thyroid? Is it is it typically one than the other? Or they kind of come together? Yeah. They so. come together, yes. Yeah. So it's stress both. management, very important. Absolutely. Yes. After diet, that's the second thing I talk to my clients. As I said, you know, like doesn't matter whether you feel stressed or not, your body is stressed out. So don't do it for your own sake. Like, you know, you are feeling or you are not feeling stressed out. Just just do it for your body's sake. We all need those stress reduction exercises. Doesn't matter like, you know, what we do or how strong we are. Right. So we need to pamper those adrenal glands through meditation, through deep breathing, through yoga, to journaling, to kind of nature walks, any of those things, they're very, very powerful. And you don't have to spend like half an hour or one hour or like, you know, for several hours doing it. 10 to 15 minutes, that's more than enough to, if of that time of doing it. That works really great. So 10 to 15 minutes, try to do it twice a day in the morning or maybe in the night, because obviously, as I said, they're not able to sleep anyways. So why not try doing this meditation before you go to bed and phenomenal results people will see. So we definitely recommend doing stress reduction things. When people start working with me, I said, you know, that one thing is I'm going to give you an advice. This is the only thing which is not going to cost you money. And trust me, this is the thing which is going to work magic like you. So please do it. And this is about these stress reduction exercises. They're not going to cost you a dime or a penny. But if you see them, if you do them correctly, they are going to give you the maximum benefit. But still, most people don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. love the free interventions, but there's we're missing the buy-in, right? I think sometimes people don't take them seriously. We yes. take them for granted. But I agree. It's got to be number one. So obviously, stress reduction is really important. Could we also go other end of the spectrum downstream looking at neurotransmitters, like if they're not sleeping, just to get them sleeping better in the meantime, looking at something like GABA, because if they're stuck in that fight or flight and we're getting the imbalances in the Absolutely, nighttime, yeah. that'd be helpful. Right. So- yeah. Again, you know, like, so what I call is that, you know, our whole hormonal system in our body is like a symphony, right? 
in a symphony like there are so many instruments playing together and that's the reason you know we the symphony sounds great now if one of the instruments in the symphony is not working the whole symphony kind of you know falls through that's the same with our body even with hashimoto's disease we only think about thyroid hormone but all these neurotransmitters are neurohormones right and we do see that hashimoto's patients will have several mood changes their serotonin levels are off their gaba levels are off you know their other like hormone norepinephrine epinephrine all of those hormone levels are off so absolutely looking at them and then giving them a short fixes are great so in sleeping obviously melatonin is great you know gaba works like magic for these people because it's so calming you know and a lot of these people again are feeling so anxious like so stressed out all the time like even small things they will just kind of get stressed about it and gamma will kind of soothe in all that stuff so absolutely they can use gaba they can use valerian roots you know they can use hops they can use melatonin magnesium all these great things you know can be definitely as a good aid to help them to sleep so many so great, great natural options. Yeah, natural options. I'm just, I mean, this whole episode, I'm just like, this is so empowering. I think for anyone listening with Hashimoto's, like, I hope that they're feeling like there's so many things that they can do. It's not just take this medicine and I'll see you in six months. There's so much we can do. So I think it, this is really empowering. I, I'm curious, this is maybe a little selfish. I don't have Hashimoto's, but I've had Epstein-Barr reactivation issues for many years. And um, as soon as I kind of let my maybe my diet, my sleep, my stress slip a little bit. That's when I feel the ramifications of that. So, and there's also research showing that Epstein-Barr is now linked to increased risk for MS, cancer. I'm curious, is there any link with Hashimoto's or thyroid issues? Oh, yes, yes. We have at least like, you know, more than 10 studies, which have clearly shown that, you know, like reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus has been linked to Hashimoto's disease. So that's one of those infections that is like clear association with Hashimoto's disease. But again, telling people it is very important to understand that we are not talking about the acute infection of uh, like Epstein-Barr. We are talking about the reactivation of Epstein-Barr. And that's where people, when they go to the doctors, oh, well, I think, you know, like I heard this podcast and this guy was talking about my, I have Epstein-Barr virus infection causing my Hashimoto's. And they will order this monospot test to check for acute phase you know, of, you know, like Epstein-Barr because of infectious mononucleosis, that is will be negative. And he said, oh, look, you know, like it is negative. You don't have Epstein-Barr virus infection. Well, that's not the test we're talking about. We're talking about much detailed analysis of your Epstein-Barr virus titers, right? The IgG antibodies, the IgM antibodies, the nuclear antigens, the nuclear antibodies, looking at the whole complete picture, then you kind of get to know whether there is a reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus in that particular person. But yes, it is very common reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus can definitely trigger Hashimoto's. Okay. In that same vein, is it worth looking at Th1 versus Th2 and the dominance there and trying to balance the immune system in that way? Absolutely. So again, in like, you know, I think, you know, like what we're trying to understand is that all these chronic diseases, right? Whether it is the cancer, whether it is, you know, any other autoimmune condition like MS and things, the bottom line is that our body starts turning against our own body, right? Same thing happens in cancer. What we are looking at is that the tolerance, right, you know, in our cells goes away in cancer. And that's the reason they just start kind of, you know, uh, divide crazily, right? And that's again, the immune system, which keeps the tolerance there. And because the tolerance is gone between the TA1 and the, you know, like the, the T1 and the T2 response. And that's the reason we see cancer as an immune diagnosis 
and not just an overgrowth of cells, right? So same with Hashimoto's disease, absolutely, it's an interplay between the two immune responses, which again gets triggered or get changed with different kinds of viruses. And Epstein-Barr virus is definitely one of those. We do see that happening in a lot of like COVID infections also. That's what COVID a virus was doing it, entering our immune system and turning it against our own body. And that's the reason we were seeing all those kind of people dying from COVID because of their immune system destroying their own body through clots or like, you know, overwhelming their lungs and things. Yeah, mm -hmm. the cytokine yeah. storm, right? Like we activate the immune system. It's so hard to get out of that vicious cycle. It's really tough for people. Terrible. Absolutely. Yes. You know, and a lot of people don't realize it in Hashimoto's, you know, like we are just seeing a lesser version of that cytokine storm or that immune response in Hashimoto's disease. And that's the reason people do not die, but their body is dying from inside. I kind of give an example of like termites in the house, right? The house looks really beautiful from outside. It looks very strong, but the termites are eating that house from inside. That might that house might not crumble in a day, but one fine day, if you touch the house, the whole house crumbles. And you think, well, from outside, the house looks perfectly fine. And this is Hashimoto's. It is eating the body from inside, slowly and slowly. It is giving some signs and symptoms to people to kind of pay attention to it. Okay, there is a problem inside. Please pay attention, do something about it. But most people are not aware of what to do to get better. And that's the reason their house, their body is crumbling and they are still feeling worse about it. Yeah. 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 It reminds me of like the saying of like the walking wounded, where it's like, you know, you see the person you're, you're, they're going to work, they're taking care of the kids they're doing all the things they, they're healthy, but really they're tired. They have brain fog. They have gut issues. It's like, you know, people try and mask the things that they think are maybe normal. They're common, but they shouldn't be normal. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for empowering and educating people. It's, we're getting the word out. We promise. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we can't finish this conversation without talking about testing because that's a really big overlooked opportunity. Most people go to their GP, they get their TSH, maybe T4, and that's it. That's the end of that. <laughs> what are the biomarkers that we really need to be looking at? And then especially for Hashimoto's, we want to always be looking at antibodies. Is that sort of like the, the key star? That's true. So the thyroid testing, again, it's very important for people to know what it means to get a complete thyroid panel and Hashimoto's panel. So for that, it is very important to understand like, you know, how our body produces thyroid hormone. So like it starts all the way in our brain. You know, we have this master endocrine gland called pituitary that produces the TSH, which is the thyroid stimulating hormone. Now, TSH is actually not a thyroid hormone, right? It is only a signaling hormone from your pituitary to your thyroid gland, which is located in your neck to start producing thyroid hormone. When the TSH reaches your thyroid gland, it starts producing the thyroid hormone called T4. Now, T4 is kind of the inactive thyroid hormone that your thyroid gland produces. It circulates in your body and in the body cells, it needs to be converted to a more active version of thyroid hormone called T3, right? So if you're just checking your TSH, you're not checking the actual thyroid hormone. So first of all, asking your doctor to do a complete thyroid panel of doing the TSH, free T4, free T3 is very important so that you, first of all, you know how your thyroid is functioning. Now, this test is not checking for Hashimoto's. So for Hashimoto's, you need to go beyond it and get your antibody levels checked. So the two antibodies to get checked for Hashimoto's, one of them is TPO, which is the thyroid peroxidase antibody. And the second one is thyroglobulin antibodies. Now, 
if any of these antibody levels are higher than the reference range given by that lab that itself is diagnostic of hashimotos you do not need to get a biopsy you do not need to get an ultrasound to prove it presence of antibody levels higher than the reference range is diagnostic of hashimotos disease but it is very important to know that because then you can take relevant steps to lower the antibodies and get to know what is the reason of your hypothyroidism and how you can get it better Right. And if someone is doing all of the interventions that you mentioned today, how often, sorry, not how often, how quickly do you think we can start to see a shift in those antibodies? Three to four months? Like when do we want to recheck to make sure we're going in the right direction? I think three to four months is a good amount of time to recheck those antibodies so that, you know, we can see they're coming down. They might not come back to normal or zero in that time. You know, that takes a little bit longer than that, but definitely three to four months, people should start seeing a shift in lowering their antibodies. Excellent. So right. more frequent testing, perhaps, for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, but that's where the problem is, right? Because a lot of doctors will not be uh, open into ordering these tests again. Because for them, once you get the antibodies, they will always be higher than what they were previously were, right? They will not believe you or they will not say they will not support you saying that you can do things to lower the antibodies, right? So that doesn't happen for them. So when you ask your doctors to repeat those antibodies, they said, well, why should why do you want to repeat it? They will still be there. They will not be lower. Um, so they right. will not order those things. But try to find a doctor who works with you, who's ready to order those antibodies and uh, and do relevant things, you know, to lower them down. Because when we work with the clients, we definitely see uh, improvement in their antibodies. They always go lower and sometimes they always, you know, like come back to normal also oftentimes. All right. Well, if you can't get the test, yeah, maybe time for an a new doctor. And Dr. Gupta, are you accepting new patients right now or virtually or? Yes. So we are a completely virtual practice. So we do see, we are seeing new clients, uh, but our kind of, you know, practices set up very differently. Our goal, you know, is to work as a specialist, find that root cause of that particular patient and then help them to reverse it and then give them this kind of, you know, lifestyle that they can continue to do in the future. So they can, you know, like feel better and then keep away from this disease. So kind of, you know, work for a very short amount of time, kind of go kind of a surgical strike, go in, kind of do the all the stuff that you need to do and go out. And then kind of people don't have to rely on us for lifelong, just for a short amount of time. So they know what is their problem and how to fix it. That's wonderful. Well, thank you for all that you do. Uh, Dr. Gupta, if you can leave our audience with one final piece of advice, something they could do to optimize their health today, what would that be? I think the first advice is that do not lose hope. Do not let anybody tell you that you have to live a life which is limited because of thyroid or Hashimoto's. There is hope for you to get better. If you do the right things, if you find the root cause of your problems and address those, then certainly not only your life, your quality of life can get better, your disease process can also get better. And plus, you will safeguard your body from future diseases. So please. Keep asking questions, keep looking for answers, and you will get better. That's wonderful. Wonderful to hear. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent advice. <laughs> Thank you. So you have your book, Reversing Hashimoto's, which we will link to in the show notes. How else can our audience find you? So we have various ways that you'd like to share information with people because everybody learns information in different ways. So I have a very active blog on our website, which is unshulguptamd.com. People who write to read blogs, we share these blogs with scientific information about Hashimoto's, so people can do that. 
We actually have a very active YouTube channel. Again, the handle is Anshul Gupta MD. Again, sharing like videos every week, you know, with relevant information related to thyroid and Hashimoto's, which people can again do on the regular basis to keep on improving uh, their thyroid and Hashimoto's. They can follow us on Instagram with again Anshul Gupta MD over there. Again, sharing uh, information over there too. Great. Cross-pollinating just across the board. Thank you for respecting different learning types. I think that's really important. I'm a video learner and I love your YouTube. So thank you for sharing in so many different ways. Absolutely. Yes. You know, that's the goal because I went through my own health struggles. I know it is so tough. I know what it means like to live without hope. And I want to give hope and share information with people, as many people as I can, so that they can take their health in their own hands and get better. Well, I am certain that our audience today is definitely feeling more hope, whether they're struggling with Hashimoto's or perhaps have a loved one that is. So thank you again for sharing your wisdom and your time with us today. Absolutely. It was really a pleasure. And I still admire the work that you guys are doing, all this great information you're sharing with people. Uh, So thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to everyone that tuned in today. We will see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.